So now, introducing one of my best friends, my good buddies, Zach Wiley. Hey, how are we doing this evening? Oh my goodness, so amazing seeing your beautiful faces this evening. Hi, Rick. Yeah, so my name is Zach Wiley. I am one of the youth staff here at Bethel Youth. And uh, thank you, Pastor Taylor, for the opportunity. I consider a privilege to be able to speak with you today, share God's word. And uh, I also teach at Centralia Christian Schools. Where's my CCSers at? Let's go. Okay. I was expecting more cheers from Jemiah, but okay. So today, uh, we're going to be looking at the most important commandment. Uh, let's start our evening off right with prayer. Let's continue. So God, we just thank you, Lord, so much for your word. It is the source of truth. Would you just speak to us tonight through your word? Um, would you be glorified through this message? Would hearts be turned to you? We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone says? Amen. So recap. What have we been talking about? We've been going through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, uh, just a biography of Jesus's life. Uh, it's been so amazing. Uh, last week, um, we were reminded that we're in Passion Week, the days leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And also last week, Pastor Taylor, he talked about how these religious leaders came up to Jesus and they're asking him questions, trying to trick him, trying to get people to dislike him, and all those different things, trying to start a revolt, really. And so that's where we pick up right now. We're still kind of in the aftermath of those debates. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, um, verses 28 through 34. So if you, ever, if you have your Bibles, pull those out. Um, and so we'll go there. So we're going to start with verse 28. And we're just going to take it piece by piece. Here we go. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, I don't know if you knew this, but there are 613 individual commandments in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament. That's a lot. There's 365 negatives of do not, and there's 248 positives of do this. And the Jews, they were quite fond of categorizing these different commandments of great and small, weighty and light. There's 613 commandments to choose from. Which one do you think Jesus chooses? It's kind of a trick question because he actually chooses two. But as we look closer, we're going to see that these two commands are inseparable. So let's take a look at these two commands together. Uh, the first one, the most important one is this, Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, these verses are a prayer that the Jews would pray called the Shema. And this is a prayer based in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. And it was like a daily routine that they would pray morning and night. Now, they really lost the significance of this. It became so routine and whatnot that they lost its significance. What have you done so many times that you've lost the significance of it? My question was like, why didn't Jesus start off with verse 30 of love the Lord your God? Why does he go into hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I found this quote, which I think is important for us tonight. It says, you cannot adequately obey the commands of God without first understanding and embracing the person of God. You cannot adequately obey the commands of God without first understanding and embracing the person of God. Do you understand who God is? And once you understand him, do you embrace who God is? So, who is God? It says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, we Christianity is a monotheistic religion. There's only three, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And so we see that Christianity is the truest religion. We see we're talking about the God who is revealed in Scripture and the Old and New Testament. We're talking about the God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We're talking about the triune Godhead, how God is one, as the verse states, one divine nature, but three distinct persons. And this is beautifully displayed at the baptism of Jesus. We have God the Father speaking from heaven. We got God the Son, Jesus, being baptized. And we have God the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove. Not actually a dove, like a dove. So we see the Trinity in view there. We see that God is eternal. God does not have a beginning. He does not have an end. He's always existed. And we have the omnis, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, meaning present everywhere at all times. God is holy. He is distinct from his creation. He is not contaminated by sin. He is morally perfect. God is righteous always exercising justice and truth. And God is love. And this is the pattern we see in scripture, students. We see the commands of scripture are preceded. They're preceded by the faithfulness of God, the revelation of God, God being revealed. Even in the Ten Commandments, do you know what precedes, what comes before it? Let's look there. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then it goes into the commands. You shall, um, 
you shall have no other gods before me. So what is God saying? He's saying, look at who I am. Look at what I've already done. Now go and do. Now we have to understand uh, God is talking to the Israelites here, right? He had revealed himself in a powerful, mighty way. He had just delivered them from slavery out of Egypt. Like the reason why the Pharaoh let the Hebrew people go was because 10 plagues had occurred, which eventually softened Pharaoh's heart to finally let them go. And then when the Pharaoh like made a second guess and was like, no, we want, like, we need the workers. We need the slaves. Uh, he's like, let's go after them, right? God parted the Red Sea, saving them. We see God revealed himself, his faithfulness, before having the commands, the Ten Commandments presented to them. So looking back, um, even to the New Testament, we see this as well. Um, one of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. It talks about how we were bought with a price. As a believer, I was bought with a price, therefore glorify God. So we see that. God, he's revealed himself, his faithfulness to us. So thus, these two commands we are going to look at are not something we go about mustering up within ourselves. It's not something we conjure up, try to obtain. It's ultimately a response. It's a response to what God has already done. And that's a beautiful thing. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us before we even did anything remotely good. Christ died for us while we were still in our sin, still condemned to death. 1 John 4, 19, we love. Why? Because he first loved us us. And that's an amazing truth that we can hold on to, students. Verse 30. Let's get into uh, this first command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So we need to define what is love. Now, our society has really hijacked the word love, and it's really cheapened its meaning for us. Uh, you hear Couples say, I love you. But then the tough, times, the tough times come, they're out, right? They only love when it's convenient or they can get something out of the relationship, out of the other person. And love has been equated to like a feeling where it's fleeting, it's temporary. And so how does the Bible and define love. How does the Bible look at it? How does it define it? We see that love is sacrificial. It is giving of oneself for another. Love is a choice. It's a choice, a matter of the will. Uh, John 15, 13 says, Jesus said this. He said, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's willing to give of yourself for the sake of another. 
at your own expense so that someone else can benefit. If you really want to get dive into this more, get to know this more, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, read it. So we see that this love expresses the purest, noblest form of love, which is willfully driven, not motivated by superficial appearance, emotional attraction, or sentimental relationship. How? How do we go about uh, in this type of love? Now, this love, it's energized by the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit in the heart of the surrendered saint. It's shown not just by words, but by deeds. It backs it up. It's manifested by keeping God's commandments. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Love God with all your heart. Heart really refers to the core, the core of who you are. And the Hebrews really identified it as uh, the core of a person's identity, okay? And it's the source of our thoughts, our words, our actions. And uh, Proverbs 4.23 speaks to this. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Love for God must flow from the deepest part of a person's being. And you can think of it as core. You can also maybe even think of it as desires, um, kind of getting down to it. Love God with all your soul. Now, this, this can uh, refer to emotion. Um, in Matthew 26, 38, uh, it says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. That's what Jesus said um, as the crucifixion was awaiting him. And so it really speaks to the seat of emotion. And I think we need to do better at loving God with our emotions. I look at uh, David and how, and just all the psalmists really, how they just pour out their hearts hearts, their souls to God, how they pour out their emotion that they don't hold anything back, how they then turn to the truth of God's word, who he is and his faithfulness. So if you're dealing with emotions, depression, I encourage you to look at uh, those people like David, those Psalms, um, to see how to express that, that emotions, because God created emotions, right? Love God with your mind. Uh, the mind embraces the will, the intentions, and purpose, our intellect. We get to know God, right? We get to read his word. We get to understand who he is. It involves our intellect, our strength. Strength refers to the physical energy and function, a.k.a. our actions, the things that we do. In summary, we need to love God with all of us, with all that we are. And we do have so many things competing for our affections, don't we? Competing for our love. And sin, it has this appeal. It has this pull on us. Because guess what? We love sin, right? That's why it has power over us. And we need a greater love than to overcome the sin in our life. And that love comes from God. You know, one thing I want you to be thinking about is what is 
currently competing for your love for God. Let's look at the second commandment that Jesus goes to. This is verse 31. It says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So we see that they're interconnected, right? The first and the second. It is impossible to love God and hate those he made in his image. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 says, uh, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved, we also ought to love one another. Do you see that pattern again? How our love is a response to his love for us. And we see that they're interconnected. Uh, Romans chapter 13, um, verses 9 and 11, Paul, he just talks about the commandments, right? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. And he's saying that all of those are summed up in one command, to love your neighbor as yourself. That love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So out of the Ten Commandments, we can even just summarize them. The first four um, really relate to our relationship with God. The last six relate to our relationship with others. And so, love God and love others. Those are the two commands. Note that Jesus did not command us to love ourselves. I know this is something that's really popped up in uh, humanistic psychology today of loving ourselves. Now, the Bible, it assumes that men, that people already love themselves. Love for self caused the fall of both Lucifer and mankind. So loving yourself isn't really associated with good things, right? So since the fall, all men love themselves more than anything else until they are born of the Spirit and are filled with the love of God. And even one of the signs of the end times that Paul gives in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that people will be lovers of self to an unusual degree. And so... In scripture, we cannot find a command for us to love ourselves. It's not in there. Uh, you will see verses about denying yourself, about crucifying the flesh. So we know that loving yourself, guess what? It's not the solution. It's never been the solution. What you need to do is receive God's love that he has for you. So receiving that love that God has already extended towards you, the love that you have to offer yourself is going to leave you empty. Our love, our human love is flawed. It's not close to perfect. 
So today, receive God's perfect love. As we know, perfect love casts out all fear. I want us to look at the teacher's response to everything uh, that Jesus said about these two commands, right? The most important commandment. Let's pick up in verse 32. Well said, teacher. (laughs) I love that. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. We see that this uh, teacher of the law, the, the scribe, an expert in the Jewish customs and all that, he had a noble response. And Jesus commends him for that. Uh, the teacher paraphrased, paraphrased what Jesus said and added to, to love is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And we've been talking about importance and everything And we see that God, he established offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament uh, that were performed in the temple, ritualistic, right? But many of these Pharisees, these religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had lost the meaning of it all because their their hearts were really absent from it. Um, The religious leaders looked righteous on the outside, They looked good on the outside. They had it all together, but they were dead on the inside. Jesus even called these religious leaders whitewashed tombs. Looking good on the outside, dead on the inside. God emphasizes the inward over the outward. God has always emphasized the inward over the outward. And we see this in the Old Testament as well. Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17, David in his prayer to God says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Wherever our hearts are, there's, our actions are going to follow accordingly. And you don't go about changing the inward by modifying the outside. Uh, something that I heard from Taylor back when, it's not about behavior modification, it's about heart transformation. And that's important for us to realize Because especially in our social media-driven world, we so focus on the outward appearance, don't we? We focus on everything that people can see. But God, he cares about the heart. He cares about what's on the inside. The Pharisees, they were good at doing stuff for God, trying to earn righteousness, trying to earn a right standing with God. I think that's a trap for us today, too. That's a trap for us today, too. And I really just want to kind of conclude with, with my story. Um, I was raised 
by amazing Christian parents. And I remember coming here to youth group, um, just reflecting on my sin, my wretchedness from the past week even, and coming into worship and feeling like, you know what, I have to earn God's favor. I have to prove to God that I'm worthy of his love. I'm looking at my past mistakes, the failures, my sin, and I'm thinking I have to do something in order to receive God's love. I need to try harder next week so I can be good enough for God. And looking back, I'm able to better articulate kind of what was going on as I've studied the gospel, studied the good news of Jesus Christ, of what he's done, I had become legalistic. I had become legalistic. Every Wednesday night ended up becoming a performance for me. And I was doing all the right things. I had all the right answers. If you saw me in Sunday school, I knew them. I had it. I had the head knowledge. I didn't have the heart knowledge. And so the performance then became me. It was my attempt to cover up my sin. It was my attempt to earn righteousness. And it was the way of I did, I guess I coped. I thought I had to earn my own righteousness, adding my good works to the work Christ did on the cross. I was trying to earn my right standing with God instead of putting my faith in what Christ had already done. And I felt condemned. I felt condemned. I wasn't good enough. I was never going to be good enough. And you know why I felt condemned? It's because I can never reach God's perfect standard. Like, I can be like, oh, I didn't commit adultery, pat myself on the back. But God's word says, even if I have lust in my heart, that I've committed adultery. James even writes that if I've broken one command of the law, I've broken them all. I stand condemned, deserving the strictest punishment deserving hell. And it was later on in life that I realized the traps of works I was in. And it was then later that I realized that, you know what? I need to repent. I need to believe. I need to put my faith, put my trust in God and his work, not relying on the things that I do. Because we see that Christ righteousness becomes our own when we put our trust in him. It's not about me trying to cover up. It's like Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves. In their best attempts, it's not good enough. But Christ's righteousness becomes, it became my own when I put my faith in him, when I repented and believed. And repentance is, is so key. It's a a quick definition is it's a change of thinking that leads to a change of living. And so not only did I need to repent of my sin, but I needed to repent of my attempts, my methods of trying to save myself. And so when I believed I was judicially declared righteous by God, the wrath of God that was meant for me because of my sin against the holy God was paid for by Jesus and what's amazing is that even before I was born, before anything even happened, before um, 
all this, you know, Christ died for me. And that's an amazing truth that I hold on to every single day. And we need to be reminded of that ourselves too. And so we need to respond in repentance. How do we please God? We please God by faith, not by the things we do. Uh, I asked this student the other day, um, if you were to die tomorrow, where would you go? They told me heaven, but they were kind of hesitant. And I asked, how do you know? They began listing the list of things that they did. Well, I pray. I go to church. But is that the basis that Christ lets people into heaven? No, no. It's by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, atoning for our sins. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we see this teacher of the law, he answered wisely. He recognized God's priority of inward over outward. It's something that I came to realize too. And Jesus responded to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Are you far from the kingdom of God? Or are you close? Or are you like me and you've realized your sinfulness, that you need a savior, and you've called upon him, you've repented and you've believed, and you're in the kingdom? Which are you? And so if you're interested in putting your faith in Christ, I so encourage you to talk to one of the youth staff. Okay, we want to um, help you process this. I want you to also grab a Bible. Seek out the truth for yourself. Before we go into our discussion huddles, uh, let's pray. So God, I just thank you so much for what you accomplished for us on the cross, dying for our sins. Lord, I am redeemed. I've been purchased by your blood. I live in freedom. I've received new life, and I thank you for that. I pray for each student in this room that they would come to that point, that they would know where they stand with you. If they're living in unrepentance, Lord, may that be so clear to them, Lord, that they would be able to repent and then trust you with their lives for salvation, God. So I pray that um, as we go into these huddles that you would just stir up these conversations, allow uh, your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, and um, we would just leave this place uh, different people changed by you. Not, not Nothing that we've done, but everything that you've done. So God, we praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, everyone says. Okay, so we're going to split off into our discussion huddles. Uh, we've got... The guys in the back, girls in the front, high school to my left, your right, middle school on the other side.